Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Juror Number One. I hope you guys have been enjoying these as much as I have and are as terrified as I am of ever getting arrested for any reason. Some of these cases is like that they will do anything to get a conviction instead of actually searching for the truth. So be careful out there. Always make sure you have an alibi is my motto that I live by. This week is another shocking one, so strap in for this one. This is a murder in Waukegan. This story starts out in August of 1992 in Waukegan, Illinois. The police get a phone call that's disturbing that says that there has been a child missing. The babysitter for these two young children have gone missing. Her name is Holly Staker. Apparently, the back door of the apartment had been kicked in, and they couldn't find Holly anywhere. Until they did a little more searching, and they found her partially clothed body on the floor. She'd been raped and strangled and stabbed 27 times. Unbelievable. An 11-year-old girl. So they start their investigation, and there was an incredible amount of physical evidence there. They got fingerprints. They got blood. They got hair. They got semen from her being raped. And they also saw that apparently the person who did this took time to go in the bathroom and wash the blood off their hands. So, what a grisly crime. An 11-year-old girl stabbed 27 times and raped and strangled. Oh my goodness, terrible. So, about a month, a little over a month goes by and the police get a tip. They said that an inmate named Juan Rivera knew who killed young Holly. They said that Juan had told this inmate he was at a party near that uh, near where it happened at that night, and he saw a man acting very suspiciously. So, the police obviously want to question Juan. And when they go to question him, they said that he was very friendly and he was very cooperative. He immediately gave uh, samples of his blood and his hair, and uh, he said he'll do whatever he can to help. He also told the police that he was at that party that night, very close to where this terrible crime had taken place. And he saw a man named Robert Hurley. And he said that Mr. Hurley had left the party a few different times and he returned sweaty and out of breath and he'd had a fresh scratch on him. But here's where this story takes a weird turn. You see, when the police look into this, there wasn't a party that night at all. 
So, why would Juan make this story up, make up an entire party to tell police about this other man? What was he doing? Well, there is, there is some speculation that he was just making this up because there was a $10,000 reward for any information leading to catching uh, Holly's killer. But the police thought, this is just too strange. Why is he making up this party trying to pin this murder on somebody? So they take him in for questioning. And you would think normally questioning would be a few hours, just in a room asking questions. I mean, when I think about that, I think maybe, you know, a few hours. This went on for several days, hours and hours at a time, just bombarding Juan with these questions, making him finally be broken down enough to saying, I killed Holly. Wow. Well, he says that he killed her. And what do you think about that? Several, several days of just being hammered with questions. And he finally says, you know what? I did do it. As soon as he confesses, they uh, take him back to his jail cell. And when they went to check on him, he was banging his head against the wall of his cell. So they bring in a nurse, and they say that he's in an acute psychotic state, and he is, quote, not in touch with what reality is and what's going on around him. What? So they wait some hours, and then the detectives go back in because he needed to sign his confession. His confession that he gave when he was, quote, not in touch with reality. Whenever they went in to have him sign this confession, he was out of his mind. So whenever they went through that confession, the signed one, they realized that there was some inconsistencies in the story. So, they go back in to interview him again. And this time, he had to be in restraints. They gave him a cocktail of drugs to settle him down. And he signed, signed his rights over again. And as this interview went on, the cops were saying, she had a multicolored shirt on, right? And before, he didn't know what she was wearing. But in this confession, he was told exactly what to say, and he signed that as well. Through all of this, through all of it, there is no physical evidence leaking, linking him to this crime. And this is when the trial begins, and this is where you have to decide what you would do. During the trial, they don't really bring up any of the physical evidence. They just rely strictly on this signed confession. 
because we all think there's no chance if you didn't do a crime that you would confess to it. No one in their right mind would do that. But there is a shocking amount of people that confess to crimes through coercion and just being wanting to get out of that interrogation room. So, as the trial goes on, there's really, like I said, no physical evidence. It's just this confession. And the defense brings up that there is no reason for him to be charged for this. Yes, he, was, he did confess to it, but this was after hours and days of being interviewed. And there was also one other thing. See, at the time that this crime took place, this murder, Juan was actually under house arrest. He was actually wearing an ankle monitor, and that ankle monitor showed that on August 17th, the day of the murder, that Juan didn't leave his house. And it also showed that he had taken a call from a family member that was in Puerto Rico. That, you would think, with no physical evidence and a government-issued ankle monitor proving where he was, would be the end of the case, right? Well, if you were a juror, what would you do? Innocent or guilty? Well, Juan was charged and convicted of first-degree murder. Right? Is that what you think would happen? They based this conviction solely off of this confession, even though it may have been coerced. So, he is sent off to jail. A few years later, five years later, the appeal comes back, and they overturn his conviction. Oh, thank God. Finally, someone is seeing through all of this mountain of evidence that is reasonable doubt for young Juan. So you think that his troubles might be over now. Well, at this trial, all they still had was that signed confession. But there was also another new witness. See, the new witness in, the, in this trial in 98 was from Taylor, one of the little girls that Holly had been babysitting that night. She testified that she remembered that evening and identified Juan as the man who broke into the house and killed Holly. Okay, this is you being the juror again. This girl was two years old at the time of the attack. I don't know about you, but I can't remember shit from when I was two years old. I remember being a cat for Halloween one year, but that was probably like four or five. That's my earliest memory is being a damn cat. <laughs> so anyway, back to the trial. 
she's eight at the time that this trial is taking place, and she says that she remembers everything when she was two years old. Well, the jury goes and deliberates this case, and what do you think happens to Juan this time? Surely they look at this and see that he couldn't have done it. But he was convicted of first-degree murder for the second time and sentenced to life in jail. Crazy, right? Well, that is not where this story ends, my friends. Old Juan was going to have another day in court. So as time went by, it got to be around 2004. He'd been in jail for quite a while now. And DNA testing comes around, like we see in so many of these cases. And when they test the DNA of young 11-year-old Holly, they find the DNA of the person that had raped her was not Juan Rivera. Shocking, right? It was not his semen that was inside of her. It was somebody else that had to be the killer, you would think, right? Well, not according to this DA's office. And now this is where this gets absolutely insane and very terrifying. This is in 2004. They find out that this DNA excludes Rivera from being the person who raped this girl. Well, they vacated his, uh, his conviction again, so he's going to get a third trial. Most people don't get one, another second chance, and this is his third trial. Well, this, you being a juror, imagine this case being tried in front of you. You have a confession that, has, uh, that was after several days of questioning. That's the only evidence pointing to him. On the other side, the defense says, there's no physical evidence here. It's not his fingerprints. It's not his blood. We just tested the semen, and without a doubt, it is not one who raped this girl. Well, guess what? This is one of the most scumbag moves I've ever seen or heard of. The DA says in this case that just because his DNA does not match the semen, that doesn't mean that he didn't kill this little girl. And you know why this scumbag DA said this? He says that Juan still killed her. That semen that was inside an 11-year-old girl was from one of her lovers that she had consensual sex with earlier that day. So they're making out this girl in front of her damn family that this girl was having consensual sex at 11 years old for everyone to hear saying this about their little girl who's been taken from them. That is terrible. 
and disgusting. Imagine being those parents, having to sit there with this person saying that this is because that she was sexually active at 11. She had sex with somebody and then Juan killed her later. Give me a break. That's when I say it's more terrifying that some of these DAs would rather have a conviction and a win than actually finding the damn truth. It's disgusting. But anyway, guess what happens now? No physical evidence. Ankle monitor that says he was home. DNA test that proves that he did not commit this. And his third trial ended with a guilty verdict again. He was sentenced to life for a third damn time. Who are these people? This is the, one of the reasons for this podcast. Who are these people that look at this evidence and still convict him for the third time? No DNA, no physical evidence, nothing. A coerced confession is all they have. And this DA can sleep at night saying that an 11-year-old girl was sexually active. Give me a damn break. So, finally, two years go by, and they finally overturned his conviction. And this time, they said, there's no more. He is a free man. Let him go. And also, the judge said that this was complete misconduct, and they barred them from ever retrying him for this. So he is free to go. And this is where we really find out some stuff. Because his defense team wanted to look into what really happened in this case. And this is where it really gets scary again. Because they found a knife that was outside in between where the, where the crime took place in a neighbor's house. And they found a knife that was serrated, and they turned it into the police. This was 10 years after the crime. The police, even though a forensic expert said that the knife wounds had to have come from a serrated blade, instead of turning this in as evidence over to the defense so they could have it tested where it might have the DNA of the killer on it, what do they do? They destroy it and don't even tell the defense about it. They destroy it, a piece of evidence. And this is where, this is the scariest part. So one of the big pieces of evidence that they thought they had was a pair of Juan's shoes that had some of Holly's blood on them. That was the small piece of physical evidence they had. But guess what? Those shoes tell a very interesting story. You see, these shoes that were used at the trial that had Juan's DNA on them because they were his shoes and also Holly's blood on them, so he had to be at the crime scene. Well, they did a little looking into these shoes, and guess what? These exact shoes that he had were not available until after the murder. Listen to this. These shoes, they found out, Juan purchased after the murder had happened. 
So guess what? They retested the shoes in 2015, and they found Holly's DNA and the DNA of the real attacker that was at the scene. And ask yourself this. How? How could the killer and Holly's DNA be on these shoes that weren't even available the time she was murdered? Well, there's only one explanation. That this police department tampered with evidence and planted this DNA on these shoes to make sure that the conviction held up. They planted evidence and mistakenly planted the real killer's DNA on his shoes. Unbelievable, right? Well, Juan gets out and he gets awarded $20 million, which is amazing. But that's not where the story ends. You see, back in 2000, there was a burglary attempt where these men um, tied this man up and set him on fire and beat him with a two-by-four. Well, they convicted one man of this, of this crime based solely on eyewitness testimony, but whenever they tested the DNA in 2014, in this case, the DNA on this two-by-four matched the DNA of Holly's killer. And someone else is serving a, a sentence for this crime as well. Sentenced to 80 years, still sitting in jail for a crime that he probably didn't commit either. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope I didn't scare you too much. I do appreciate you listening. Make sure you like and subscribe and all that jazz. And tell your friends. So I'll be back next week with another episode of Juror Number One. Do me a giant favor and have a wonderful day. Farewell. <laughs>